So I, f- I feel like I'm 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 running with the big leagues now. Thank no, you. No, no, not at all. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, yeah, uh, my my uh, music podcast kind of dropped off as I got busier with eleven clients. So uh, it's kind of fun to be back uh, doing this and talking about it. that's that's um, yeah, that's funny. Howdy, and welcome to this episode of Conversations at Music My Mother Would Not Like podcast. It's a series of conversations with artists, singer-songwriters about their current projects, and industry people about the current trends in the marketplace. The program is hosted and produced by myself, Bruce Swan. The podcast will endeavor to be a bridge from the weekly live concert series to the weekly radio show. While unaffiliated, they are connected with the sharing of the same name, music my mother would not like. And you can find more information about the weekly series and the radio programs at the website musicmymotherwouldnotlike.com. The radio show can be heard live on WSFM LP 103.3 FM Asheville, North Carolina, and it can be heard live on AshevilleFM.org. The programs are archived on the website, too. And the program airs on Mondays from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. The weekly music series with the same name can be heard on and seen on Zoom and Facebook. And you can get more information on the website and on my Facebook page with the same name. Registration for the series is always free. It is a donation-based event, and that's how we pay the artists. These podcasts will vary in length. Many of the episodes will come from interviews conducted live in the radio studios or via telephone and now via Zoom. Nothing was ever taken out of context and may be updated if it's possible and appropriate. The opinions expressed will be those of the speakers and not necessarily of any of the radio stations that I've been lucky enough to be affiliated with over the years, its owners, staff, or boards of directors. You can support this project directly through the website's PayPal account. In time, there'll be a Patreon account, and we'll have heads up on articles, interviews, etc. If you're digging what you're listening to, please tell a friend. If you'd like to support the show and would like a shout-out of thanks, let me know in the comments section of PayPal. Please remember to indicate that you are sending a donation as a, as a gift to a friend. In the comments, let me know where you're listening from. I won't use your last names unless you tell me that it's okay to do so. Any little bit helps, and if I've learned anything from my years in community radio, is that lots of big things will happen and get done when many hands help chip in. Think about the cost of a cup of coffee at your local favorite spot, and maybe you're listening while you're sipping. I'm really glad to be with you and keeping company with you, wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Would your business, firm, company, project, whatever, like to meet other cool people like yourself? 
Maybe you'd like to be a sponsor of the program. Working with people that think like you or share common interests is the key to getting things done. You can write to me at the website, musicmymotherwouldnotlike.com. Over the years, I've had the opportunity to get to know many musicians and industry people. The musicians are often the band's principal singer, or in the case of the singer-songwriter, the only person the conversation is with and about. I've also been privileged to get to know other radio personalities, directors of festivals, owners of venues, record promoters, and producers. Many of the conversations were to promote a single event, like a local concert or a discussion about a new album with a deep dive into that project. This week, we will turn from the artists that make the music to a portion of the industry that is often the unknown side of the business. It is a side that, with the venue's talent buyer, is the person that is the conduit between the artist and the owner of the venue. It's those negotiations over the course of many weeks, many emails, many telephone conversation that makes a post in social media, in the press, or on the air that says something like this. Tickets go on sale tomorrow for the much-awaited return to our area of... You know how the rest of it's going to go, right? This week we'll delve into the role of the booking agent, or as is commonly referred to as simply the booker. My guest from a leading agency and fellow podcaster is Brad Raley of Black Oak Artists. His appreciation for music began at an early age under the tutelage of an older sibling that helped to develop his keen taste and desire for live music. And now he, with colleagues, helped bring some of the best acts to a city and town venue near you. We're joined this week, or this episode, of Conversations That Music My Mother Would Not Like. Earlier we talked to, in the podcast, we talked about the, the emphasis on the podcast would be on talking to musicians, singer-songwriters, as well as people from industry, and I'm really pleased to enjoy, a, enjoy some time with a, a competitor from another agency, somebody who's been in the music industry for a long time, been around the music industry, um, is a, somewhat of a musician himself. It's a pleasure to welcome Brad Rayleigh, uh, one of the members of Black Oak Artists with a roster of 48 that I think that you manage something like 11 artists on your on your plate at any given time. Good to be hanging with you, and thanks for taking some time. And thanks for being on my podcast. You're, you, you've got two podcasts that you do yourself, so I, f- I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm running with the big leagues now. Thank no, you. No, 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 it's, it's a pleasure to be here. I, yeah, uh, my, my uh, music podcast kind of dropped off as I got busier with 11 clients, so uh, it's kind of fun to be back uh, doing this and talking about it. that's that's uh, yeah that's funny. <laughs> and then let's let's jump let's go from music to the the uh, the topic that you do on your other podcast. What's that about and and how did that come for, about for you? That was a, a friend of mine that uh, actually went to high school with here in in Fort Collins many years ago, and she did a PhD in journalism. And we started reconnecting through Facebook, and so we wanted to do a, a political podcast, and so she's has a wealth of history or wealth of, of knowledge of journalism. Obviously she teaches it. Um, and then I had the history background and, you know, and then we were both political, avid political watchers. I'm a little less so now, just, just sort of for my own sanity, but it was a good way for us, especially during the pandemic to get together and just sort of vent and, and um, make each other laugh. And there were a couple of times where it was really kind of a lifesaver 
you know, to, to sort them. Of, so we would talk about things that we both had expertise with. And then we interviewed some people. I knew people from academia who I could talk to from political science, uh, from I interviewed a couple of scientists early on in the pandemic, some of my friends from Oklahoma in the biology department to talk about the virus and, you know, just sort of some of that, which was really interesting. Um, and so we, you know, used it as a way to kind of keep ourselves sane, but then also, you know, talk to some smart people. And, and I, I mean, I interviewed a couple of authors and, you know, kind of, that, that was fun. And then, and then as you probably saw, I interviewed Peter Mulvey, who we, I think we both know. And, and uh, Peter, if, if you've ever, if you ever get a chance to hang out with somebody like Peter Mulvey, you should take it up because not only is he a fantastic musician with one of the best voices in the world, but he is knowledgeable and he knows so much stuff about a variety of topics and he can actually have, you can have one of the more informed conversations. So he and I sat down and did a pretty lengthy podcast, which I split into one that was a discussion on music and one that was a discussion on politics. And with Peter and with the discussion on folk music, it was hard to keep those two kind of from blurring together because, you know, it, uh, especially with folk music, you know, with Woody Guthrie and the, the history it's it's very much a political kind of genre and so it's that was an interesting kind of realization as i was doing a lot of the the music podcasts i would try to keep it from being completely political because we needed that respite you know we want to talk about music but politics was always kind of there because of the genre that, that sure. people, people writing about topics and writing in a in a context in a history that that, that was inherently political so that that was always incredibly enjoyable especially with somebody like peter you know I was fortunate to talk to several musicians, uh, Mark Arelli, Mary Bragg, um, um, Haley Reardon, uh, one mm -hmm. of my own uh, clients, and of course, Annie Sumi, who you just did uh, a two-part series uh, radio uh, interview with her. Um, and, you know, it, it's so much fun talking to smart people. That's, that's you know, a pretty, pretty good rule of thumb. Maybe that's, maybe that is it that it is fun to talk to smart people and, and sort of see where they're coming from, what their thoughts are on, on particular ideas. Let's get this out of the way quickly. Where's the best place for people to find your podcasts? Uh, it is on Apple uh, podcasts. I think it's uh, something I've forgotten. It's called uh, uh, music at three pines, the podcast uh, and music at three pines is the, the, um, house concert series that my wife and I started here in Fort Collins. Uh, we have three pine trees in our backyard. We had three pine trees in Oklahoma when we lived there. And that seemed like a nice kind of uh, way to do it. And we had fun with that. Um, and during the pandemic, one of the ideas I had not only to keep myself sane was to talk to musicians, but the idea, which haven't been able to do because of the pandemic was that it would be a way for me to interview artists who were coming to our house um, talk about songwriting, then that would be a nice way to, to promote it to the people on my list. Um, and so that, that's, that's what that, that podcast, and you should be able to, to find it, um, just by searching that. Yeah. I've, I've enjoyed the process myself. It's been, a, uh, I've done a lot of interviews of artists for yeah. radio, but it's a different discipline. The, the, the podcast, it, you're able to, I think, go a little bit deeper to flesh out some ideas. You don't necessarily have the same time constraints that you do on radio. It's not, it's, it's radio is so defined, you know, the top of the hour, the end of the hour, it starts, it finishes, your show begins, it's over. Whereas a podcast, if it runs 57 minutes, it's okay. If it runs an hour and seven, it's okay. You know, there's no, or if, it, if the conversation is done in 30 minutes, 
then it's done. And I think that exactly. that's, there's a lot of latitude in there and um, I've enjoyed getting into it and looking back on some of the interviews that I've done in the past and say, okay, these are, these are podcast worthy. They're, they're worth fleshing out a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Let's, let's get on with it. So I've, I've dug the process. You work as a booking agent. And for those that are uh, um, either a lucky enough not to know what a booking agent does and what the responsibilities are and the challenges and the frustrations. Let's, um, let's, let's just stick to the optimistic side for, for a moment. Okay. Paint the broad stroke, if you can, of what your responsibilities are within the industry. Yeah, so I, I work with um, about 11 artists. Um, I've got a couple of um, duos um, and a lot of single, single uh, singer-songwriters. And so my job is really to meet with them periodically, find out where they want to tour, and then to try to help them flesh out tours uh, together. So I spend a lot of time emailing venues, house concert hosts, um, you know, trying to figure out how to get through their spam filter, get through their, get attention in their email box. Uh, we've, we've talked to people, this is on the challenging side of it, but it's also just sort of let you know, some of the venues, um, you know, are getting, you know, seven, 800 emails a day of people, you know, reaching out, wanting to play. And some of those people are artists themselves. Some of them are booking agents like myself. Um, so what I do is I spend a lot of time each day going through, trying to look at routing. It's, it's a, it's a, the, the fun part of it is it's, it's a puzzle. Uh, you know, I've got, I've got Annie Sumi going to, to Michigan in May. I know sort of the routing she's going to take to get there. We're looking at dates. And so trying to keep, uh, we try to have a, a four hour drive the day of a show. If somebody's playing, that's kind of our guideline. It often turns into more or less or something, but um, you know, so you're trying to put these get together in a puzzle piece. You're trying to learn about the optimization of those key nights, those Friday, Saturday nights are usually going to be your higher paying jobs. And then if you get a Tuesday night gig, you're, you're celebrating because that's rare. Uh, you know, it's like the Yeti. You've just seen the Yeti in person and, uh, and Mondays, I, I don't believe Mondays exist, um, in the <laughs> world. um, so yeah, so I, I spent a lot of time, uh, emailing, texting, phone calling, Zooming with uh, with these clients, talking about what they want to do, where they want to play. Almost everybody I work with, there's a lot of house shows, a lot of smaller venues. Uh, you know, I, I don't have people that are yet, and they're all capable, but they're none of them are playing the big theaters, the big, you know, and so that's, that's the challenge is getting them to helping them to build up a, an audience in different areas and figuring out how to do that in a, in a way that actually can make them at least a little money along the mm-hmm. way. Um, and then, you know, and then I, I'm just in follow-up mode all the time, trying to make sure that we get these dates uh, figured out and get this routing. And and with all of my artists, they actually do some of the booking themselves. They've got contacts, they've got house concerts that they, they connect to, and I'm trying to help fill in the gaps. And, um, it's at times an incredibly challenging and uh, frustrating job. Um, the reason I do it is because I like these musicians. I believe in what they do. I get to spend time with them, which is just amazing for a music nerd. And so, um, so yeah, how's, how's that for an intro to booking? That's certainly the optimistic side of it. And I think that's the, uh, one of the joys of the business. And you're right, it is a puzzle. Um, you're connecting goals with 
responsibilities of getting the artist from A to B, what's realistic, what do, what can be done, what should be done, uh, the negotiation of ticket price, lengths of sets, all of these things are negotiated in long before the artist sets, sets out on the road and helping them to achieve their long-term goals. I think that that's the fun side of, right. of the business and sort of maybe the paternal side, you know, the, the sort of... Sure parent responsibility to the artist and and um, looking after them what's pandemic done for your for your business well that's i mean that's why i started a podcast is that i was i started out booking i was booking with uh annie sumi and then uh danny nichols who lives in london and danny of course wasn't going to be um, I, I do her north american stuff and so she wasn't going to be over here and annie was pretty much uh, you know not going anywhere in canada so um for the most part what we did during the pandemic uh dennis grable my my colleague um he decided that one of the things he wanted to do was to grow the agency. So we started looking for people who, you know, that we admired and wanted to add. So we kind of used it as a time to kind of reach out and add people. So, I mean, so many of the people that you, you in that number, uh, I honestly forgotten the number. Was it 40? 48. I counted today. 48, yeah. We've added Which may have changed. I don't know. He's meeting with some <laughs> we, people today. <laughs> we've we've added a whole bunch of people during during the uh, during the pandemic, and then and then Dennis also wanted to add more agents so we could add more people. Um, and so uh, so that that was the positive side of the pandemic. The the negative, of course, is that is that none of these uh, artists were able to do what they needed to do. Um, so we were so grateful for uh, you know things like your your streaming show, uh, Mother My, or Music My Mother Would Not Like on Tuesday nights was is, is such a great series and that um, and you know I'm glad that you're continuing to do it. Obviously a lot of these artists were doing some of that on their own, doing some of their own kind of live shows, some of them very effectively, some uh, not so much. We at Black Oaks did a couple of what we call Coronathons. Mm-hmm. Um, I still, <laughs> One, one artist who I won't name, who I uh, got to do one of my Coronathons, uh, uh, her manager wrote me back later and said, I didn't know they were called Coronathons. Can we call them something else? <laughs> <laughs> but she did it and she was happy with it. You know, it was it was it was good. And it, the, the positives of that, the negatives, of course, are, are apparent. Uh, lost revenue for uh, for many of these artists, some of uh, artists and, and I know you know them, I know them. A lot of them are people who had a, an album ready to drop in early 2020 or mid 2020 and then the pandemic hit and so for some of them they were like what do i do with this album some of them went ahead and released it and just decided to go for it others held on to it and and tried to release it later um that was devastating to a lot of them. i mean and when i was talking to mark Arelli, he released blindsided right as the the pandemic hit um and he said, and this was interesting because I didn't know this side of the business. I said, you know, I said, well, you'll get a chance to tour those songs. And he said, yeah, absolutely, I will. He said, but there's something magical about when an album is coming out, when it's brand new and you got publicity behind you and a team and you'll never recover that magic again. So, yes. So, you know, that that part was lost. But the good side was for me from the pandemic for the podcast was there were a lot of artists who normally may be too busy to sit down and talk with me who had plenty of time and so i was able to talk to liz longley and uh and and mark arelli what is one of my musical heroes i, I feel like i've been watching mark for almost 20 years now and uh, just to you know admire him so to be able to sit down and talk to him was just a joy um 
And then also because of some of these streaming, your show, uh, uh, some of our, our um, sort of online festivals, I discovered music I didn't know about. Um, and it was, lo- I mean, some of these people I'm, I'm friends with now, Caitlin Cantor was one of those. Uh, mm-hmm. Caitlin, uh, uh, Dennis brought her in on one of the early uh, um, uh, Coronathons and she and I realized we had some, uh, she, she was living in Colorado at the time and we had all these friends in common. We started chatting, I ordered her CD and you know, a couple months later, it turns out we're working together. And so there were some real positives out of that. Obviously, the negatives are, are huge, especially financially for, for a lot of these artists and, and psychically. I mean, it's just been so difficult for all of us. Um, but for people who, especially those people who really love to get in, out on the road and get in front of an audience, you know, that, that was really hard. There, there are some artists that we know that are, they do it and they enjoy being up on stage, but they're pretty happy being home if they can. Uh, but then there are people like, I mean, you know, Peter Mulvey is out on the road uh, on his bicycle, literally, you know, riding from town to town with his guitar. Um, those people, it was a real adjustment in terms of how to kind of figure out their their world. And for me personally, I'm, I'm a fairly social human. Um, I can be um, isolated and, and uh, you know, cranky well cranky for sure but um i um you know there there was parts of this that was actually kind of fun for me but on the other hand i was missing out on that experience of, of going to live music I and mean, i know this is something you thoroughly enjoy as well um so that was difficult so finding that kind of bridge those online streams were uh, you know they weren't perfect and they were often clunky but man there have been some of those that have just been outright magical and have been really life-saving and life kind of restoring in the middle of you know difficult times so uh i'm not sure i answered your question but that's uh, <laughs> no i think you did and I, I agree with you um the podcasts have been helpful in in terms of maintaining that uh personal contact and i think the streaming shows have helped bring artists to the forefront of of, of listeners that they might not have known about um Touring was gone, festivals were gone, uh, gatherings, professional trade meetings with with the regional conferences and the international conference wisely were postponed or just simply canceled. There's no no doubt that that, that it was the right decision, albeit a very difficult one. And the loss of revenue certainly will never be replaced. But the, um, I was, we mentioned Andy Sumi before and I asked her about having written this record in 21 and it was probably finished up in 20 and got ready to release in 21 because of the lag time and all that. Um, I said, why did you release it? And her response was that it, it had to go. It it couldn't, it couldn't, she couldn't hold it back any longer um, because there were other things that she wanted to work on that was going to take it in a different direction. And so therefore this, this record had to have its own life. It had to get out there. It had to, had to survive and see what was going to happen for this particular project so that she could get on to the next one. And, I, and I've had the opportunity to talk to several of other musicians um, that are inching their way back into, into touring. You know, let's do talk a little bit about the, the power of the anchor gig. And when that dissipates, 
um, what that means to the rest of the tour. And 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 let's start with, with saying, okay, what is an anchor gig, and then um, how how significant is that to say some of the subordinate dates, a Wednesday or Thursday night, if you've got good Friday Saturdays. Yeah, so the anchor date is the is the one that holds the whole thing together. If you if you've got and maybe you have a couple of them that are good paying shows that you know can cover some of the basic costs. The the economics of touring are, I think, for many people, if if I can just say, uh, you know, for a lot of people who go to a show, all they see is the is the magic trick that's that's put up there of, of curated songs and hear somebody. And what they don't know is all the stuff that's going on behind the scenes. They don't know the hours spent writing the hours spent booking uh, either with me or with them. And then there's all the travel and just the, you know, just the difficulty of getting from point A to point B and paying for it. Um, and if they're touring with uh, another musician, this is something a lot of people don't know either, is that if, if you take a musician out on the road with you, a side man, a side woman, um, sometimes that person might be part of a, of a group and they just split whatever money you make. In other cases, they're paid on a daily basis to mm -hmm. go out on the road. So the finances of it become very difficult if you're looking at some of the typical gigs. Let's say you get a, a singer songwriter who's going out, they can play in a bar, they can make, you know, or a coffee shop someplace. Uh, some of those pay well, but you can also get a gig where maybe they, they just make tips. Maybe they're making a couple hundred bucks. They sell some merch, uh, merchandise, excuse me. Um, you know, they might get a guarantee of a couple hundred bucks or a meal or something like that, but that is going to make it really hard to pay for that tour. So if you've got a couple of well, uh, good paying gigs, you know, a thousand dollars here or something, a guarantee that that artist knows they're going to make enough money, then, then that allows you to do some other shows that are financially not a good idea, but market wise are a great idea. You know, you're playing in front of a, a public show that's a ticketed show in Chicago, for example, and you may not make much money there because you don't know enough people to fill that room. And so maybe you split the bill with somebody else who's local. Um, and so you're not going to make much money, but you get in front of a whole bunch of people. And if you've got a good anchor gig, that allows you to do these other investment gigs, if you will, mm -hmm. what my wife always calls, you know, it's sowing seeds. You're going out there trying to get you know, just build that audience slowly, working it. And, and it, you can't do that if you're relying on just playing for tips, you know, at a bar or a coffee shop. And so we have to find those gigs that are well-paying. And, and, and this has been one of the real challenges. I was just talking uh, with somebody earlier today about the fact that, it, especially for artists like mine um, and a lot of yours, um, they do a lot of house concerts. They do a lot of small intimate venues. They're not playing large arenas or theaters. Um, and those, those, by the way, those house concerts can be incredibly lucrative. They can be really well-paying. They're usually getting the bulk of whatever money comes in. They often get a room. They, I mean, it, it's, it's a good financial deal. And of course, in the pandemic, a lot of those went away and have been slower to come back than the others because people are scared to have others in their house still. I mean, this is something we've dealt with with our series. So some of those kind of really good anchor gigs where you know, and if I can also say something here that, that I think a lot of people don't know is that if you go into, like I've, I've just been working and I'm trying to get some shows in Chicago and, uh, and in the Detroit area, and there are some great venues and those great venues do not have a built-in audience. And what that means is that the artist, it's incumbent on the artist and hopefully the venue will do some promotion. 
but you have somebody who has never played in Chicago and you're coming in playing a, a, a club like, uh, for example, Hey Nani is one that I've been working with. Um, I think it's a great little club and it's going to be really good for some of the artists I'm getting in there, but they don't have a built-in audience. Um, so these anchor gigs that we're talking about can sometimes be those, those built-in audience, a house show. I have people that come to our house show that will affect the last one we did was with uh, Scott Cook, um, uh, who, um, you know, is fantastic singer songwriter and one of the people that came to our show said he said to his wife on the way out the door he said who are we going to see tonight and she said does it matter uh, because they we they've learned to trust us and that's the way a lot of house concerts work and there are some venues like that there's some community centers that they really kind of they say look we're bringing in good people you can trust us come see us so those are those anchor gigs that are they're just valuable and and you want to you want to hold on to those and and keep keep good care of those relationships and all those things. Cause then it allows you to do these others that ultimately may help you build a bigger audience and move up to bigger gigs, but they may not make money the first time through. Right. So are, are you suggesting then that when you lose the anchor, sometimes the ones on either side have to go as well, that we just yeah. have to pull up and, and pull stakes, yeah. head home and beat home. Um, yeah. It's, it, it, it took a while for me to really fully grasp that as as a as a booking agent. Um, I, I too work not as much as the boss and, and not as much as you, but um, nonetheless, I, I, I feel the pain when you get a phone call that says we, we have to we have to close. Um, yeah. The act last week came through and someone has has been diagnosed with COVID. We can't we cannot open. The laws say we have to close. Right. I'm sorry, but then that's the end of it. The the uh, when the pandemic began and it really started shaping up that this was not a three or four day week or a three or four week situation, that it was big. And the festivals started calling in and, you know, the, the phone conversations, you recognize the number. So you take the call and you kind of, you kind of grimace a little bit, the phone's ringing, you pick it up and you kind of get your eyes closed and you're nodding your head and you say, hello. And they say, they'd say who they are and you know, what's coming. You know it's coming, and they tell you, we've we've canceled the conference or the con the concert. We've canceled the festival. Uh, right. No, we don't know if we're going to do this again next year. No, we're not even sure we're going to ever do this again. Right. Thanks for your understanding. Click, and you take your phone and you throw it against the wall. Right. <laughs> and then the right, phone rings a couple of hours later, and you repeat the process. And that's what it was like in in. Uh, February and March of, of 2020, it was just, it was brutal for all of us. But little by little, um, I think we started rebounding a little bit. And, and we are optimistic at the, at the agency that, that I'm with uh, for the same. And I'm, I gather you are too. You are booking yeah. stuff. I'm watching the, um, the booking posts come through, and it's exciting to see things back at, at it. Conversations at Music My Mother Would Not Like currently enjoys the benefits of being connected with and sponsored by HearItThere.com, an online arts publication that supports the arts and culture of the New York City tri-state area with concentrations in the Hudson Valley and Western Connecticut. Intelligent, well-written blog columns about music and the arts can also be found on the site HearItThere.com. Check it out and consider marketing your upcoming events on hearitthere.com. I do. Um, you came to music, interestingly, 
and I thought as I as I read your as your sheet that you grew up in in a musical appreciating family. Your father enjoyed singing, and you you had music in the house playing, and older brothers that that played a little bit, and you yourself um, has that helped with a, with an appreciation for working with artists. Is it does it sort of contribute to the frustration um, or the sharing of the anxiety for them? You know, I, I I don't know in terms of working with with artists. My my middle brother uh, was a songwriter um, and a good one. Um, he 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 was the first person I think I knew who wrote a song. Um, I mean, it's so funny how I think for so many people they're like, obviously somebody wrote this song, but it's it's for me it was just a magic trick. I had no idea that someone could sit down and actually write a song, and so that was really important for me to actually be around somebody who wrote songs. And you know, his songs were. They were perfectly fine for a, a teenager um, who had was self-taught. He had good musical ear and everything else. I mean, crafting the songs. I mean, I now know that there's a much deeper kind of process. So, so that gave me a, a, an introduction, you know, to to that side of music a little bit. Um, the appreciation, I think, has just been so helpful for me. The fact that there were people in my in my uh, in my life, in my family, my oldest brother. Uh, was a great appreciation appreciator of music. He still is, and so he would he would come home from college. I still remember he would come home from college with a cassette or an album for me that I'd never heard. Somebody I'd never heard. He introduced me to Pure Prairie League. He introduced me to uh, to uh, oh, I'm trying to remember the is it Lonnie Anderson? No, no, that's not right. It's um, uh, it, it, she did the song uh, I Never Promised You a Rose Garden. Why am I blanking on that? Oh, me too. Uh, um, that's yeah. bad. I'm a DJ. <laughs> I know. Uh, and my clients, uh, Caitlin and Alice, actually met her and do that song on tour. So I, I for some reason, that's like, anyway, I, you know, I listened to cassettes like that. I listened to, I think I, I told you that when my friends were listening to ABBA, uh, which I'm not bashing, by the way, uh, but when they were listening to ABBA, I was listening to Emily Harris. I had Emily Harris's first solo album on vinyl, um, Pieces of the Sky, I think it is. And, um, you know, and so I was I was sort of deep into Americana and folk without even knowing I was. Um, and so that, I think, has been incredibly valuable and incredibly useful that when I started hanging out with some of the my musical heroes as I sort of evolved and my, my musical tastes have changed to a certain degree, they've certainly expanded in, in certain ways, that there was a musical vocabulary there that I could, you know, I could sit down and talk with musicians about some of these kind of historic um, groundbreaking musicians. We could talk about Neil Young and what he brought to to music, especially on, on that side, or, or someone like Amy Lou Harris, who I, I've already mentioned, or talk about some of the great guitar players that we've seen, flat-picking guitar players, uh, Vince Gill, others, you know, just amazing. So along the way, that kind of being exposed to that uh, has been really helpful for me as I, as I, you know, hang out with musicians now. And, and I've had a couple call me a little encyclopedic on music and I, and I want to, I'm always kind of like, yeah, in certain areas, I know a lot in other areas. I know nothing. So, you know, there, there are these pockets where I can tell you every, I can tell you almost all albums that Amy Lou Harris has put out, but you give me out to somebody else and I'm, and I'm lost, you know, but it, it's, it's been a nice way to, you know, how it is. There's a vocabulary. There's a language of every group that you're around and to be around musicians, especially people in Nashville kind of people, Americana singer songwriter folk music that there's a there's a there's a vocabulary there and I feel like I came into it with a bit of that 
I had to learn the industry stuff later, but the the vocabulary of the music, the appreciation of the music about a, a well-crafted song, um, that that I think I had some introduction to as, as a younger at a younger age. You mentioned uh, Pure Prairie League. That was the very first bona fide arena concert that I saw. They were opening for ZZ Top on the Worldwide Texas tour, and I had never. I'd never experienced anything on this level. Sure, I'd seen some rock and roll in the in the school auditorium, but not ten thousand people, eleven thousand people. Yeah. Uh, general ad- admission to ZZ Top, and um, I think my ears are still ringing from that concert. <laughs> but when the lights came down for the first time, man, I had that that unknowing but but inquisitive and stupid grin on my face, and. Um, you know, I still get it. I've been going to shows for longer than I care to do the arithmetic for. Right. But when the lights come down and and you're driving, even still, you're driving to the show and you're wondering, I wonder if the DJ is going to play one of their songs. And you know how preposterous that is because I'm a DJ. And right. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's not going to happen. But you're still you know, kind of scanning the dial, checking the buttons, making sure maybe someone's got that. And it's, oh, I'm going to see that band. And it's ridiculous. And it's, it's it's like getting excited for Christmas or for the Easter Bunny, you know, as an adult. But the lights come down and you start wondering, you know, are they going to play this song? Is they going to play that song? Right. Of course, they'll play the big hits. What, what are they going to play? What are they not going to play? You right. know, I wonder who's, you know, all this crazy stuff. And then the lights come up and there's the band. They hit the first note and you're you're off. And, and yeah. the carnival has begun. And... Um, you're in Never Neverland, and then at the end of the show, you know, sure your problems are are right about where the car is. That's that's usually the start of the problems. Yeah, oh yeah, gotta do this tomorrow and so on. But for those two those two hours, that ninety minutes, while you're transfixed and watching this magic, it's it's as good as it gets, and it never it never gets tiresome. UndiscoveredMusic.net is a wonderful resource for musicians, venues, and fans of music. You can get more information at UndiscoveredMusic.net. It will help you find venues. It will help you find where your favorite artists are. If you are a touring musician, it'll help you find venues that you want to play at. UndiscoveredMusic.net. We've talked about some of the challenges of of being a booking agent with with pandemic, with the challenges of, of... getting the dates lined up and the challenges and the, the fun of the puzzle and, and connecting all the pieces. Do you, are you feeling that there's light at the end of the tunnel now? Do you feel that, that we are through this or do you think, or are you fearful that there's perhaps another hurdle in front of us that we haven't yet seen or that, or that we're going just going to say, listen, let's just throw caution to the wind and see what happens. Yeah. I think it's a little bit of that last part. Um, I, so my, my previous life, I was a, an environmental historian. That's why I, I studied graduate school. So part of that was actually we read about uh, pandemics. Um, and, and so I, I remember reading quite a bit when I was studying for my PhD exams on disease theory and how they work. And, and you know, I mean, I've, a lot of that I've forgotten. There's certainly the details. But there was, there was kind of this sense. It's been interesting from that perspective, living in this time, having spent a fair amount of my adult life being nervous about a pandemic occurring. Of course, we've all been warned, you know, swine flu or, or avian flu or 
whatever, Ebola, um, to actually have one really take hold and really disrupt life has been really fascinating. So the historian in me is, is interested in that and also recognizes that all of those major pandemics have had lasting effects um, that, that, that we, you know, in some cases, I mean, in, like the, I was just reading today that the, uh, the Black Plague, uh, you know, transformed feudalism. And that's outside of my area, but I mean, it, it had that kind of impact. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to see some things come out of this. I'm hoping some of those things will be positive. The, I also follow a lot of, of, of doctors and, you know, there's, there's cautious optimism here that yes, there may be another variant, but we're having enough kind of exposure immunity. There's going to be, uh, you know, treatments, that kind of thing. So I, I'm starting to see that people, and again, it does cause a problem for, for me since a lot of what I like to book people into are house shows. A lot of house shows, not all, but a lot of house shows are run by older retired people who, you know, are going to be perhaps more cautious than, and they have a lot of older people who come to those. One of the odd things, by the way, about folk music, if you go to a folk uh, show, um, I often will look around and realize I'm the youngest person in the room. And, uh, you know, so there's, I've had this conversation with a lot of folk musicians who are younger than me, but they're playing largely to older audiences. And so that, right now, we're still at a stage where some of those people are certainly completely justified in being more cautious about going out to shows. But then we're starting to see people, you know, taking that step and saying, all right, the music has to happen. Life has to continue. We take the precautions we can, we move forward. And so I'm, I'm seeing that I'm seeing, you know, venues open up and, and they're requiring masks, which is, I, I was at uh, big head Todd and the monsters here in town, um, which was, which was fun. And, you know, masks were required inside. My wife and I wore our masks, except for if we were uh, taking a drink of the beer or something. But we look around, there'd be people that, you know, just ignored it completely. And that was, you know, early on. So, you know, I, I think a lot of places are just going to move forward. People are taking a different kind of calculus on the risk. And the same is true for a lot of the artists is that, you know, especially for them, the need to get out and play is financially more important to them than just the desire. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're having to take a risk and we're taking risks, many of them before, but all of them are, I think are, are served to the point we do the best we can. We, we take the best precautions we can. We sort of adjust. We know we're going to have to adjust um, and we'll just sort of move forward. So yeah, I did the long winded answer. The short version of the long winded answer is I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, you know, we're for one thing we know is we're moving into the warmer months outdoor stuff is largely safer and always has been safe. And so as we start to get to warmer times, there's much more opportunity to get people playing outside. And, you know, once you get to the cold months, then it gets a little trickier, you know, moving people inside. But so, yeah, optimistic. I'm I'm going with that. (laughs) Final answer. Um, (laughs) What precautions are you requiring of the venues on behalf of your artists? What What are the artists looking for in terms of, comfort levels of what, what they, when we, when the pandemic began, um, we watched a couple of more or less workshops, sort of informal gatherings of some top industry people, some of the bigger players, the ones that were running, you know, two, two tour buses and um, a chase truck with all the, with all the gear, big operations, as opposed to singer songwriter that may have their own sleeping van or, Honda Civic that that has 200,000 miles on and everything in between. But for them, it was big stuff. And they said, we anticipate, to the extent that we will go on the road, we anticipate bands getting off the bus, into the venue, 
nobody touches them. Nobody sees them, nobody anything. They go straight from bus to secure green room, from secure green room to stage to green room to back on the bus. And, you know, almost to the point of disposing of clothing, proper showers before getting back into into the rig and then taking off. And I think that that was a bit extreme, but it wasn't too far off. Uh, you know, some of the contracts that I've been seeing are requiring that the venue... Um, have all participants and all occupants fully vaccinated, two plus one, and and masks only. And are you seeing a lot of that? Or are you seeing that relaxed? Or you know, what's 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 the skinny? Well, so honestly, for a lot of my people, uh, some of my people have simply just been uh, them. They themselves been too cautious to go out on the road, so it's really not come up. They've just sort of decided to, to wait until until things are a little bit more open. Um, the others have, uh, for the most part, again, we're looking at smaller. I mean, it's funny when you're talking about the big venues with the green room and the, you yeah. know, uh, a lot of, a lot of the people I'm working with aren't going to a green room. It's, it's the, you know, it's the, uh, it's the outer part or it's the parking lot is the green room. Um, they're, they're, um, they, I mean, most of the ones I'm working with, if they're going out on the road, they are essentially taking, they've decided to do what control they have. They themselves are vaccinated. They're hoping that the places they're going are at least having some kind of precautions. But I haven't had any of mine say, I'm not going to go play this place if they don't require vaccines. Okay. And to be fair, most of the people like, especially some of the coffee shops, I mean, there are people I know you guys have worked with in the Northeast. I mean, they are, they're on top of it. They've been requiring vaccines when that, when they were available, they've been requiring masks. They've been shutting down when numbers are too high. Um, but then we get into some places, you know, uh, we, we had some people in, I don't want to say venues, but in, in Georgia, where the owner says, I would like to require vaccines, but I can't. The state won't let me do that. So I'm, I'm encouraging people. I'm kind of hoping that they're going to do that. And so some of my artists have simply had to say, well, we've we got to get out and tour. We're just going to have to take that risk. And they've been, they've been willing to do that. Um, some of it, like I said, some have said, I'm not going out until I, I really feel confident. Um, so in, in our house concert, by the way, that we did, we, we kept the numbers very low and, and, and only invited people we knew who were vaxxed and, and boosted and did masks while we were inside. And, and, and it, even then we were, you know, crossing our fingers. This was mid January. So we were a little, little nervous about it. As we start to get in, we've got, um, somebody, you know, the rough and tumble, uh, my, my, uh, duo, uh, a band they're amazing if you haven't seen the rough and tumble you need to go see them anyway they're going to be coming and playing our house in april and you know and we're kind of hopeful who knows we'll, we'll kind of see where we are numbers wise and how things are doing i i think we're still going to require even if numbers are off uh, are are really at the bottom we're going to still require vaccines uh, that that seems to be really prudent at this point um and like most of our people do that so i i really don't have a good answer to what you're talking uh, you're mm -hmm. you're asking um like I said, I've been lucky with a lot of my people. I'm thinking about some of those Northeast coffee shops, famous full places. I mean, they're on top of it. And if they can't, they can't really provide a safe environment. They're not going to do the show um, is what they're going to do. And so um, is there an answer in there somewhere? I think so. Yes, <laughs> I think so. You know, the, the, one of the things that the big comparison, of course, between house concerts and the smaller venues and the larger venues is that most people's homes are not, they weren't designed for the type of uh, air circulation, ventilation, right. filtration that a commercial venue has to have and, and does have. So it's a whole different animal to put 
20 or 30 people, 40 people in your home, depending on the, the size and the capacity, and have everybody feel the okay about that because your ventilation system was not designed to do what you're hoping it's going to do and that's help keep everybody safe and it's it's not designed to do that so i've seen um much of the house concert audience is diminishing um until people feel comfortable and a lot of hosts have said i'm i've reduced my occupancy by 50 percent. i'm sorry if you still want to come we'd love to have you and i already have all vax cards on file i've got a pdf of every single person that comes if they if they don't feel comfortable giving that to me that's okay no hard feelings um when you provide the information you can come back and until then you can't come and and that's that seems to have worked well for a lot of folks uh but it's a difficult thing and i like the what you talked earlier about the house concerts and that is that they are your your patrons your regulars are trusting of you as the host to put the best that's available on stage is they trust your judgment. And for a lot of them, it's about the camaraderie. And um, interesting that you note that the younger musicians are playing to, you know, a much, much aging, uh, aging out audience. Um. What is your take, if we can, we can jump around a little bit, but what's your take on these hybrid concerts where venues are offering the option for um, one time or at that moment to watch the show live from their home, from the venue? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because uh, what was uh, the, it, it, the application went away uh, right as the pandemic started. Concert window, I concerts, think? Yeah, yeah, concert window or concerts in your home. Okay. Um, and so they were doing that before the pandemic. They were, they were, in fact, I remember us trying to do, I, I worked for a nonprofit in, in, uh, not worked, I was a volunteer for a nonprofit in, in Northern Oklahoma called The Depot. It's a great venue. It's a historic train station, did indoor shows there. And we experimented with trying to do some, some possible streaming to, uh, add to the, you know, to, to allow somebody who couldn't make the show, who say was in Amarillo and really wanted to come see this particular artist, but couldn't make the drive, but they could actually log in, uh, watch the show and then contribute to, to the, to the take. So they were doing that somewhat before, before the, um, before the pandemic, I had people with my house concerts. I've got a good friend who lives in Georgia and he kept saying, why don't you do a Facebook live of this concert? And I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll be there, you know, tricky, you know, sometimes depending on, on what your Wi-Fi mm -hmm. situation is, what your, and so we didn't always do that, but um, it's been, once we saw the writing on the wall about the pandemic, like you said, once we realized this was not a three week kind of thing and we were going to be back to normal. And then as, especially as people, as artists started to kind of up their game, as venues started to up their game and get good streaming uh, cameras, figure out how to do this right, not just with a, a, a an iPhone. Um, we kind of knew that there was going to be the, the move towards these kind of hybrid things. And I personally, personally, am absolutely fine with it. I know that there are some who really don't like the idea because they're worried that actually, if you allow the option for a streaming, then that means people won't come to your venue. Uh, even if it's, if it's safe, I, I find that to be, um, I mean, maybe it's just me, but if it's somebody I really want to see, uh, seeing them on a screen is, is, is okay if, if that's my only option. But as you were just describing, that, that experience of being in that room, um, in that concert hall or in that small venue, my wife will tell you that 
watching me the half hour before the lights come up and the, and the opening act or the artist is there is I am I'm around bouncing around I'm I'm giddy essentially that's not something I feel when I'm at home getting ready to watch a live stream and I think for most people that's so I don't see it as any kind of competition a meaningful competition and I see it as a way to not only expand the audience get get somebody to see somebody uh, that they may not have have seen live before. Um, and, you know, honestly, with these hybrids, there's a good chance that you get a good situation. We watched uh, Scott Cook uh, with Kerry Morin um, at, uh, this was at Eddie Owens Presents. They did a really great job. And I was watching the live stream, was able to really feel like I was kind of there. And uh, and since it was in Georgia, I couldn't make the trip and be sure. there. I would love to. So I, I you know, I, I think if you can figure out a way to add a little bit more money to help some of these venues stay open. That's one of the things that we haven't talked about. We've talked about the, you know, the financial strain on artists not being able to tour, not being able to sell merch, which is a, a, for many of them, a lot of their revenue comes from selling merchandise. But then we have a lot of venues that have really struggled to keep their doors open. We know during the pandemic, I mean, Threadgills in Austin closed its doors permanently during the pandemic, and they weren't the only one. Um, the places that are reliant on live music and filling the room with places have really struggled. So. And this is, I think a lot of us feel this way that, boy, if there's a way for a venue to supplement that, to keep that and still have some live music, go for it. That that seems like a good, good, good way forward. And and for me, the, the people that really want to come see live music are not going to choose to be on their couch to watch live music if they can go see that that situation. Exactly right. I think you're, you're you get the nail on the head. And one of the things that, that we looked at is uh, my involvement with the folk club in Connecticut was that you're looking at a group of people that are getting older. And as we all know, the older you get, it becomes more and more difficult to drive at night. So you have a whole population that have not had to drive at night for two years and have been able to see music, great music from all the corners of the earth, uh, various times of day, but they've been able to see more than ever before. And yeah, there's the magic and the camaraderie and the community of getting together, but not having to drive at night if you don't, if you haven't done that. It's a skill. It's 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 like playing an instrument. It's, it's something that needs to be practiced and done regularly, or your skills deteriorate. Um, that's where I, I see that population saying, "Okay, I can participate. I can assist the venue. Um, I can sort of." Be with everybody, but I can't. I don't have to be there, and I can still. I can yeah. still get a ticket. I can still um, see live music. Uh, so I think that the enhancements to 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 venues that have put in the cameras that have expanded their audience. Um, we were talking to some some venue operators in the Northeast, and they have looked at it as a marketing tool, mm-hmm. um, as being able to show archived um, concerts that they've done, and to be able to bring great music to to anywhere in the world I, I they, and they're they're very excited about it and I, I i am inclined to agree that that is a, going to be a big a big piece of the future let me um, add one one more one sure. more component there by the way that one of the things that um i'm sure you've run into this as as a part of a pitch to a venue or a house concert i'm usually sending video, a, a link mm-hmm. to a YouTube video, because what you want to do for somebody, I mean, sometimes you're pitching somebody they know about and that's not, I mean, it's either whether they can schedule them or not, but sometimes you're introducing somebody brand new and you need to show 
for somebody who is putting on a show. This is true for us as a house concert. It's true for uh, for a venue. They want to see what they're going to be like on stage because sometimes right. people are perfectly fine in a studio. They can be perfectly comfortable, but on stage they they don't connect with the audience. Whatever. One of the byproducts of this streaming thing that you're talking about because um i'm thinking of several venues that have upgraded their cameras for the fact that they can do you know these these live streams well out of that one of the things they can do this can be negotiated as a part of the deal is a week i did this last year with a, a, a place in alamosa that actually had a live video of side pony playing on stage and they were streaming it for people who wanted to contribute uh for the streaming audience but out of that we got a, a thumb drive with with all of this high deaf video that, that could be used and and put into pitches and that that's another you know something that that uh only booking agents uh think about perhaps but uh uh but you know that, that that's that's another benefit of that because good quality video of a live experience is oddly enough more rare than you might think especially with a lot of singer songwriters so well especially with the fact that everybody holding up their camera um getting what they believe to be a superior product is actually inferior sound and it can be highly detrimental to yes. the overall picture. And what you you talked about side pony for the for the uninitiated, it's Alice Wallace and Caitlin Cannon. And the two of them have marvelous solo careers, very different artists. But when they come together as side pony, when they bring in the full band and even parts of the band, um, it is a marvelous concert. Very, very different than what the two of them are individually. But collectively, they are absolutely magic on stage and a wonderful act. Um, I've had the privilege of seeing them and interviewing them a couple of times. And so uh, I'm, I'm very fond of, of those two as, as Side Pony and as their, their individual yeah. solo careers. I think it's just it's just really great stuff. I'm big fans. I'm a big fan of, of, of all three. Yeah, exactly right. All three. Conversations at Music My Mother Would Not Like currently enjoys and is grateful for the sponsorship from hearitthere.com and undiscoveredmusic.net, as well as listeners like yourself. If you'd like more information on sponsoring your program or contributing to the podcast, you can get more information at musicmymotherwouldnotlike.com. I'm Bruce Swan, and I thank you. Hey, let's geek a little bit, man. What kind of gear are you using and what kind of software are you using for your podcasts? Are you um, are you doing them live in, from your home? Are you doing them in advance or in conjunction with your house concert series? But what types of gear or equipment are you using? Okay, so what I've done most of them, when I started during the pandemic, it was it was all Zoom, like, like you and I are doing right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things as a part-time musician and and i stress the part-time and and <laughs> really should i don't know if there's i i own guitars uh I, I think that's the best way of putting it as opposed to being i'm a guitar player or mandolin player but i've, I've played you know with little iterations here and there so over the years i collected some microphones collected some mic stands that's come in really handy with the house concert so when i started first started doing this this pandemic i figured out how to connect one of these microphones it's a this is a industry standard and uh sure sm58 that you know you'll find it at um i mean everybody knows what they are they're they're really good standard mic not as good as others but you know it works real well so i was able to connect it to my computer and the sound is really i think pretty good i, I found uh, that that worked really well so that was a nice kind of way for me to do that um 
I think I, I think maybe the first one I did just with the 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 uh, the microphone on my computer and that did not work nearly as well. Um, so this that, that was definitely an upgrade. Then I what I do is I edit these. I take the files, take the audio file, and edit in GarageBand. And so then I can edit out where I blather, which is often as 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 you know. Um, so I can actually take out the stuff that was extraneous. I got a little bit better at that. And then I actually have found uh, there's an online website that kind of helps even out the sound uh for those files if, if you if you want to uh that was that was very helpful um so that for the lion's share of all my podcasts have been exactly that process connecting by via zoom recording it taking that file and then um you know and using my my little microphone i i, I purchased a, a little uh desktop stand for my microphone i had a boom i had a boom uh, mic stand which i kept you know hitting myself with it and tripping over it this worked out much better um, the last podcast, I actually tried something because I didn't really have anything for an in-person podcast. I'd never done that before. So when Scott Cook was here, I just set my uh, iPhone on a, on a stool in between us and put it on record. And I have to say that didn't work. I mean, it worked fine. You can hear it's, it's, it sounds fine. But uh, one of the people uh, who listened to the podcast said, boy, the introduction, um, that you did sounded, I like that microphone much better than the interview. And I'm like, yeah, well, that was an SM58, you know, it was a good quality microphone, not the, even though the iPhone has, has improved. So one of the things I'm thinking about, because one of the things I would like to do is be able to interview musicians, you know, sh uh, very briefly, uh, perhaps at Folk Alliance, for example, mm -hmm. or uh, Americana Fest. And um, to have the ability to have a little better recording, I don't know if it's a portable Tascam or one of those, or you can get a microphone that would connect to a, to an iPhone or something like that, might be something I think about. Because I mean, I will say, and you and I talked about this when we were getting ready to do this, being able to see each other is 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 a benefit. Uh, it, it would we could do it over the phone, and we could we could accomplish that. But it's really easy to get distracted when you're on the phone. Uh, it happens to me all the time. I'm looking out the window. And the neighbor kids uh, come by and I, and I think, why aren't they wearing a coat? It's cold out. You know, I get, I get my brain goes in a different direction. And whereas when I'm, I'm, I'm actually sitting there with you, I'm, I'm, I'm much more focused in that. I think there's a benefit of being able to sit in a room, sit in a space with somebody and really talk to them because you really get that, you know, what I do with my podcast, some of which I, I hopefully won't have to do. The first part of a lot of my podcasts was how are you coping with the pandemic? And I'm hoping at some point not to be able to ask, have to ask that question. But I want to talk to them about their craft of writing. How do they write? How do they how do they learn to write? And so I love being able to do that. And I, I've never done one over the phone. I'm really glad for that because I've always been able to get to see them, the look on their face when I've asked a question that maybe they didn't anticipate. Or, uh, or maybe to see one that they think that that wasn't the best question. You, you had a better question, didn't you? But, you know, you, you see that and, and to be able to kind of do that. So to answer your, your gear question, I've been pretty minimalist up until now. Um, but I am kind of thinking about doing something that would allow me to, you know, sit down with somebody, like I said, in a, in a hotel room, uh, you know, a, a conference room kind of mm -hmm. setting at, at Folk Alliance and say, hey, you know, let's talk about that album you just put out, that kind of thing. And so... Uh, but I'm, I'm still working out the bugs on that. Do you enjoy the uh, preparation work? I mean, as a as a as a scholar, do you find it fun to do the the prep work? Um, is that tedious, or do you rely a lot on what you already know? I, I 
be honest, I mean, most of the people, especially when I first started, when I first started interviewing people, they were all people who had played in our house at the mm -hmm. beginning. Uh, so I was, I was interviewed. So one of the first ones was the rough and tumble. Uh, in fact, Scott and Mallory, who are, make up the rough and tumble, uh, wrote a song, which is now the theme song for my uh, podcast. They, they, they wrote that for us uh, for music of three pines. And so, so I didn't have to do a lot of prep work. I'd already talked to them. You know, I, I, I knew these people. I, I interviewed several people who had played our house. So it was only when I started talking to people that I hadn't met in person or hadn't really spent time with that I would sort of have to, like Mark Arelli is one of them. Um, you know, like I said, I've been fans of his since the early 2000s when we saw him in Oklahoma. Um, so I've seen him a lot, talked to him a lot, but I also did a little research. I was out there reading interviews because I wanted to see, you know, I don't want to be asking, and you, you've said this too, I don't want to be asking the same old questions that they've answered 20 million times. I'd like to find a little different angle or, or at least uh, recognize that they've been asked this question before. Um, so with, with people like that, I've, I've, I've dug in a little bit more and I'm, I'm absolutely fine with doing that. I, I really do like, by the way, I like just getting in a room and talking to people. And so sometimes that means, uh, and to give you an example, where sometimes that means you, you uh, set yourself up for looking like a fool um, I interviewed Heather Maloney. I don't know if you know Heather, but uh, she's one of our favorites and she's just a delightful human, great singer songwriter. She did a whole run of shows with Dar Williams. <clears throat> In fact, we got to see her on one of those uh, tours, but I interviewed her last year as she was putting out a, a pandemic uh, Christmas EP. Um, and it's a lovely EP of, of, of Christmas music. And there was a song on there and this is where, had I done a little bit more research, I probably would have learned this, but I didn't realize it was actually a Dar Williams cover. Um, and of course, since I was getting that, you know, when you buy the music digitally, you don't always, you don't get the liner notes. So you're not Correct. seeing, you know, what's happening. So, uh, so in the interview, and I, I will say, I went back and forth. I was going to cut that part part out and make myself look smarter. And then I realized there was enough really good stuff in there. And it was okay to admit that I had made an error and didn't know that that was a Dar Williams song. And so, you know, that's the kind of thing where a little little more prep work would have, would have probably served me better. Well, we've all had interviews that, that we wished had gone slightly different direction or not gone the direction they went. Right. Um, and it's, it's awful when it happens. And it's worse on Zoom when it goes sideways. Right. <laughs> At least I, I, I got my start doing uh, radio interviews. And when I began them, I didn't want anybody in the studio. I was terrified. And then I got a little better with doing them recorded and, and then started doing some on telephone. And my feeling was the telephone was safe. If the, if the interview wasn't going the way it was supposed to or it could go sideways, just hang up the phone and say, ah, you know, I lost the call. Let's drop it in a track and we'll see if we can't get them back. And you knew you weren't going to even try, but you right. had to play the game. And um, but as, as one gets skill set a little bit better and, and feels a little more confident, um, I think that you, you you demonstrate that to the interviewee, and so they begin to feel comfortable. And then I think that's when you can really get get to the good stuff. I've I've always said I I won't take anything out of context. I'm not here to do shock radio. There's other right. people that do. I don't enjoy it. I don't like listening to it. Um, there's other people that that do it and i guess by their own standards they do it well i just don't like it so i don't participate in it i don't think it's it's that much fun is there anybody you'd love to interview like if you could if you if somebody said who are the two who are the next two people you'd like to interview and who, who do you think they would be regardless of whether it's feasible or not i mean whether oh, yeah. it's practical 
could happen, never happen. Uh, one I would absolutely love to interview is Kathleen Edwards. Uh, mm. Been a fan of her since her first album, Failure. And um, just, I, I, she, her, her album, Voyager, uh, which is her, I think her fourth album, uh, my colleague Dennis and I agree is maybe one of the best albums ever made. I mean, it's just, it's just really stunning. She is, uh, she's, you know, she's Canadian. She's, uh, she speaks her mind. I think she would be, I, I, I would be terrified to interview her just because I'm afraid that if she thought I was a fool, she would tell me to my face with a few F-bombs thrown in. Uh, but she's such a great songwriter, such an interesting human. I would love to sit down and talk with her uh, about music. One of the things, by the way, when you were asking about prep work, one of the reasons I, some of it, the focus has been really about how people write songs. And so I had a little knowledge about having written a couple of songs. So I, I honestly, there were a lot of times I didn't have to dig into too much research in terms of the background. It was really just finding out how they approached or how that had evolved. Uh, so that would be interesting, although there are there are some people who who don't think about songwriting that much. And so those interviews have not gone quite as well as as perhaps some of the others. Um, I'm, I'm vamping here a little bit because I'm trying to think who that other person is. Uh, Rhiannon Giddens uh, would be another one that I would love to interview, um, you know, from the Carolina Chocolate Drops to her own solo work. And, and she did an album. This was back when I was still teaching uh, college history, but she did an album uh, called Our Native Daughters uh, with all women, all African-American women um, players. Brilliant record. It's a Allison brilliant Russell. record. Yep. Yes. Amethyst and I, I almost drove off the road listening to some of those songs, uh, just stunned by them as kind of a, a historical record. Um, and so I, I would, I, you know, that's not going to happen either. Uh, but I would love to sit down and, and talk with, with her. And there's more, I'm sure, because I, I mean, I, I feel like I meet musicians. And one of the things I'm planning to do, by the way, is, is to work my way through our roster of 48 um, and the ones that I haven't interviewed yet, because there's an awful lot of really thoughtful people on our roster who are great songwriters. So, Hey, tell us again one more time where we can find your podcasts. I'm sure they're on the usual haunts, but um, what's the, the central location for you? Yeah, Apple Podcasts, uh, search for Music at Three Pines, the podcast, uh, because I'm I'm bad at names. Uh, so I just thought I would just name the podcast after my uh, house concert series and um, yeah, I've interviewed I've interviewed uh, several people over over the years. I did I did I think I, I've forgotten how many I did. Uh, I did quite a few the first year and then and then it kind of dropped off as it got busier, but um, I'm, I'm looking forward to doing more of them. My wife has started to learn how to do the editing and helping out with that, which takes uh, is, is really helpful. And she wants me to interview some of these people. So the, the, whole, the hope is when we have people come into our house concert, we can maybe sit down like we did with Scott Cook and talk about songwriting a little bit if we can find some time. Uh, or like I said, when I go to conferences and, and get a chance to, to talk to people. Last question. What's the ticket that got away from you as a, as a concert goer? What's the one show that you just didn't make it to that you wished you had, you kicked yourself oh. the next morning. Oh, I know that one. It's the hold steady. Um, the hold steady was playing at a small, I mean, a tiny place in Norman, Oklahoma. It was the original band. And um, I don't know if you've listened to them, but mm -hmm. boy, that original, that original lineup was unbelievable. This was, I'm not sure if it was after, um, I can't remember which album, uh, but we were leaving on a long road trip the next day. 
uh, like driving, you know, several states. And we just decided it just was didn't make sense to actually, you know, be up late at night. It was like a Wednesday night or something like that. And I think back on that, it was, I mean, it was probably a $20 ticket, a small club of, of maybe a hundred people uh, to see the whole steady. I would have, well, you talk about the the magic of the small club in your bio, the uh, the advanced piece you sent to me, and let's do talk on that a little bit. Um, the the going from seeing big bands in 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 arenas and um, you know the likelihood of one of of getting that front row seat, the the really special seat is is virtually zip. But the magic of the small club, what's what's that like for you? Oh, I. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is absolute magic. I mean, I'll go to big venues. There's a big venue here in town called Washington's. It's a great venue. I've seen Trombone Shorty there. I've seen the Mountain Goats, New Pornographers, seen some really good acts in there. But, you know, you're in a crowd of, I mean, in that case, if it's sold out, it's 900 people in there. Um, and there's a magic there too. Don't get me wrong. That That's really lovely. But when we first, uh, we were in Oklahoma and and Chris Smither, um, who's a fantastic folk blues player, unbelievable. And I had just heard about him and listened to a little bit of his music. And all of a sudden there he was playing at this club in Oklahoma City. And so we, we got tickets, got in line because it's general admission, found our seats up front. And I, I was transfixed in a way I had never been transfixed before because I was seeing this man in person, you know, six seven feet away from me and then at the break you know i mean he's selling merch in the back we're talking i asked him about you know a, a song he didn't play there was a magic there that i i honestly can't <laughs> explain it, it, it is it's it's an intimacy um that's what these house concerts do too and that's what people have, have come away from ours that you know they they go to the coca-cola center and see somebody from a distance maybe with a, a screen helping them see what's happening on stage and that again can be magical but in this case, you know, after the show, they walk up to somebody and I've seen people in both in these commercial venues and also in, in my house concerts where I'll see people come up to the artist at the break or after the show and they'll be, have tears in their eyes because there was a connection there that, sure. that, that really, and, and that to me is is just amazing. So I, I love the little venues. I love the little hundred seat or, or, or smaller. I love a house concert where you really get to talk to somebody. Um, it's 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 a it's it's the best way to, to experience music in my in my experience. Uh, um, again, I mean, you know, there again, there's some of those big clubs. I've seen Mark, I've seen Jason Isbell in a big club in Tulsa. Unbelievable, so great, and I'd do it again. But seeing somebody in a small room, there's nothing quite like it. We mentioned Chris Smither. I've seen him perform um, in a very very big room as as part of a festival in New England. And then saw, I've seen him play a very small room and had the, the real privilege of having him in my radio studio. And yeah. that was really pretty magic. Um, uh, you know, the, he, he plays on a st- with a stomp board, a yep. piece of particle board. With and a mic he on said, it. He said, I, I, can't, I can't play without this thing. Can't play. So the way it is. It's I mean, cool. he's one of those guys, by the way, I had heard his recorded, uh, I had a live CD, one of his live CDs. He has several mm-hmm. really good ones. And I, I was listening to that and I just thought, well, there's, there's five or six players up there. 
and <laughs> walk into the small club. There's just Chris with his stomp board and the microphone down there and his guitar. And the, the amount of sound he gets is unbelievable. And yeah, he's stunning. It's fantastic. We've been chatting with Brad Rayleigh. Get more information about him and catch his other um, podcast, Music at the Three Pines, the podcast. Brad, thanks so much. It's been fun talking to a colleague, a fellow podcaster, a fellow booking agent, music appreciator. Um, thanks so much for your time. I do appreciate it. It's been a blast. Thank you. This was the fifth episode of the podcast series, Conversations at Music My Mother Would Not Like. You can get more information about the weekly radio shows and the weekly stream series at musicmymotherwouldnotlike.com. Big thanks to our sponsors here at there.com and undiscoveredmusic.net. My sincere thanks to Brad Raley of Black Oak Artists, who is part of a first-class group of bookers. Check out Brad's in-depth podcasts at your usual podcast haunts. His podcast is called Music at the Three Pines, the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation and I hope you did as well. I'm Bruce Swan and thanks so much for listening. So until next time, don't take any wooden nickels and so long for now.